This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we crack on with today's show, we'd like to say a massive congratulations to Muiwa Oki, who we recently featured on the show for his historic victory in the RIVA presidential elections. We will be reviewing the reaction to this breaking story next week, so tune in. But now, without further ado, on with the London. Soaring inflation sees one-eighth of households facing no options to cut costs. A power shortage leaves West London with a new homes ban. How buy-to-let landlords fueled the housing crisis. And the Grade 1 listed Finsbury Health Centre is finally set for a refurb. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Ben Page. Ben is global chief executive of market research firm Ipsos. He's also a former commissioner at CABE, that's the Commission for Architecture in the Built Environment, a patron of the charity Create Streets, and a CBI councillor for London. Welcome to the show. Hello. More than one-eighth of households in the UK worry they have no way of making war cuts to afford their rent as energy bills soar to new heights. Survey results published in The Guardian show that more than a quarter of households earning £20,000 or less fear they will be unable to cope as the energy price cap is due to go up again in October. Added to that, almost half of UK households are feeling the pinch to keep up with rent or mortgage payments as they brace for energy bills of up to £3,850 next January, a value three times higher than at the beginning of this year. Another report, also covered by The Guardian, indicates that a fifth of households are experiencing a £60 per week shortfall between what they earn and essential outputs such as rent, transport, energy and food. The chief executive of UK financial services provider Legal & General, Nigel Wilson, said, quote, Many households across the UK are facing very tough financial choices. For some, these choices seem impossible. However, what is concerning is that the impact of the cost of living crisis is being felt more severely in some parts of the UK than in others. This threatens to widen the existing demographic and geographic inequalities that the levelling up agenda was designed to address. So Ben, the cost of living crisis is something that has been discussed in depth by pundits. But what is the public mood? Polling by Ipsos shows that concern over soaring inflation is now hitting 45%. What is the significance of this? 
Well, simply, it's the highest it's been in decades. And um, and it's pretty much the highest level of concern about inflation we've ever measured, apart from uh, during the three-day week or something in the early 1970s. So, uh, no, this is un- this is unprecedented territory, and I think that the macro picture that we have to get our heads around is that this is the the problem is that this is the last straw in many ways for a lot of people, because over the last twenty years, what you've seen is the proportion of people in Britain who expected their children to end up poorer than them rose from twelve percent to 45%. There's been a massive psychological shift. And so the latest crunch coming after the pandemic with record concerns about inflation, ability to pay basic bills, people cutting back, uh, but also, of course, very unevenly experienced. There's lots of wealthier households that managed to save money during the pandemic. They're the people who are currently jamming up the airports with what limited capacity there is. Uh, But there's also a large um, minority of people who really are going to feel the crunch. And how this plays out, I think, is just is just not clear, particularly because the public haven't quite worked out yet just how bad it's going to get over the next six to eight months. And just an interesting comparison, like what does 45 percent look like compared to, say, concerns over climate change or like concerns over coronavirus uh, when we were partway through the pandemic? Massively. Well, I mean, coronavirus did at the time would have, would have swamped that. You'd have had six out of 10 or more. But climate change is nowhere. Climate change now is about number eight or nine on people's lists of priorities. So the short term economic imperatives, inflation, paying the bills, the economy, all of that swamps climate change. It doesn't mean to say that people don't agree that climate change isn't a clear and present danger. And in fact, it's the one thing that unites the world, literally. Um, the issue is about how we might deal with it. But it's just that it, for most people, you know, what, you know, climate change, they're worried about paying the bill next week. And does this, uh, you, you mentioned that they're thinking about the impact in six months time ahead is that unprecedented to have such high levels of concern with something so far off in the distance or is this number actually more relating to like the bills right now and the cost of petrol the current concerns you're seeing about inflation are what people are currently experiencing when they fill up their car or go shopping i think the issue is that i'm trying to draw people's attention to is that until the the energy bills really hit the the full grim realities of it and what people might want to do or have to do um, probably won't register because one of the things in the survey that we do for the Bank of England is very clear, is that people have tended to underestimate just how bad inflation is likely to be. Consistently, it's a study we do every few months, it's published, and every few months they're consistently below where inflation actually is. They also don't think it's going to last as long as someone like as the former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, might. So, I think this is why I think that things are unfortunately going to get worse before they get better. And exactly how that plays out politically uh, or in terms of people's actual behaviour, of course, we will have to wait and see. But certainly not a happy place. So uh, obviously on the London, we like to come at things from a built environment perspective. We talked about the cost of living crisis on the show before, but we focused a lot on the insulation of our homes. Now, Bloomberg recently reported that the government's walked away from plans to add a further £1 billion to the existing £1 billion of funding designated for home insulation. That's a scheme earmarked to help the poorest UK households reduce their energy use. So, Ben, does the public link the cost of the living crisis to housing and insulation uh, or is public concern more focused on different areas such as fuel and food 
you know, we're seeing a lot of people making cuts, but are they also looking into how they can live in more energy efficient homes? They, they are reducing energy use, whether that's through better insulation or just more careful consumption, is up there on a list of things that people are trying to do. But mostly they're just trying to stop spending money. So, you know, you've got people saying things like, if I boil potatoes for five minutes and then put the lid on and leave them, will I, will I be able to get cooked potatoes, et cetera, et cetera. So, but, but, but overall, I think that the, the challenge is, as with the housing crisis as a whole, many of these things are so complex. Most people don't even know that the government has an insulation scheme. Uh, many homes, of course, our housing stock is some of the oldest in Europe and not easy uh, to insulate. And so, you know, insulation is not going to be the top, top of most people's lists for dealing with some of the problems that we can see down the track. So obviously, we're a news review show, so we like to look at the media and how things are being covered. And it's interesting that the COVID recovery and also the war in Ukraine are commonly cited as the root causes of this current inflation crisis. Um, it'd be interesting to know what the consensus is among the public, British public, on uh, what the causes are. Um, do opinions differ in London compared to the rest of the country? And also, is there any recognition that there are longer running affordability crises, such as access to low cost housing, for example, which also play a part in this current problem? So people see the current inflation crisis, cost of living crisis, as primarily due, due to external factors. So the war in Ukraine, supply chain issues following the end of the pandemic and the reopening of the economy, uh, rather than some, some of the structural challenges we have in Britain, like the housing crisis that we have, our, our regional disparities in terms of where we build things, etc., where people want to live. Um, and I think it's interesting that people acknowledge that we have a problem with things like regional inequalities. Most people in Britain will tell you, if you ask them, that there is a housing crisis. I think the challenge, as with the social care crisis, interestingly, is that all of these things for most people are pretty complicated. You know, they can see lots of new houses. So telling them we need to build new houses and this will put the price down for many people in many parts of London and the South. They'll have seen lots of new housing over the last uh, 20 years, 30 years. Have the house prices come down? No. So then you tell them we've got to build even more. Um, it's, a, it's a complex picture. Who's responsible? Is it the local authority? Is it the government? Is it, is it the house builders? It's the same with social care. And so because of that, interestingly, when we ask people, you know, who, who do they blame, they, it, it gets apportioned around. And it's partly how government in some ways is able to dodge responsibility over the housing crisis in a way that they could not over a crisis, an accident, an emergency in the NHS. I mean, anecdotally, it's often cited that when it comes to the housing crisis, there is a big divide. There are people who, for all extents and purposes, their housing is sorted. You know, they might own their home or have a long-term tenancy, and is, there's no crisis. And then there's other people who it's a massive crisis. They might be moving home every year or more than every year. They might even be living in a shed in someone's garden. Um, does this does this division, apparent anecdotal division, does that also follow through in results you see in polling on issues like this? And does it have a real impact in our society? Yes, very crudely. And this is where we get into some of the politics of it, of course, because it is a crisis in particular for the under 40s. Uh, and one of the things about British politics over the last decade is that they've become very polarised by age, more so than social class. And so the young, um, who tend overall not to vote for the government, the, the conservative government that we've had for the last 12 years, of course, um, are, are not necessarily seen as a priority group. In contrast, homeowners uh, who um, tend to 
vote Conservative. And it's one of the reasons why the Conservatives very logically are very keen to promote home ownership rather than more affordable social housing um, in terms of where they intervene in the housing market. Ultimately, I, I just look at the charts on housing completions year by year, going back through the 1970s, 1980s, 1960s. And of course, you suddenly see, when you look at that, a massive change after 1980, when effectively the state stopped building itself directly, particularly local government. And that, is, that together with the sale of, sale of existing social housing, um, is, is part of where we are, of course. Now, we touched on a historic date uh, with the collapse of the construction of new social housing. Uh, yeah. You briefly touched on that. But obviously, there was, a, there was another really uh, big sort of milestone moment that happened in this discussion. That's the 2008 financial crash. Uh, now, a graph originally published by the New Statesman has been circulating again on Twitter recently. Uh, it shows that average weekly earnings adjusted for inflation have stagnated since the 2008 financial crash. In fact, current average wages are back below 2008 levels, uh, despite the soaring cost of living. Um, ben, this data indicates that households have been struggling for a long time now. Um, what has been the impact of this growing lack of economic resilience across society? And why is this issue getting so much more attention now, despite it being around and getting worse, frankly, for quite a long time? So I think, I mean, the one word is hysteresis, uh, which is a posh economist's word for the long-term cumulative effects of a change. So we've had this squeeze on real, real wages uh, which is equivalent to this. It's the longest in British history since the Napoleonic Wars. Now, of course, in the early 19th century, living standards as a whole were somewhat lower than they are now. And so, you know, people have still got stuff and they're not, you know, they, they have health care, which they didn't have in the early 19th century. So it's not quite the, the base is different. However, it is a period of real stagnation. And that's why I go back to this point about the fact that I find so striking that nearly half of us are now expecting the next generation to actually end up poorer. And that's making us very frustrated. You can see this not just in Britain, by the way, but you can see it across Europe. You can see it in, in North America and you can see it in the politics. Brexit is in part uh, a vote against all the people who seem to be not uh, you know, lifting and lifting everybody up. The gilets jaunes in France are the same. The people who voted for Donald Trump are the same in America. It's this loss of the future that has gradually become more and more visible in a country where nine out of 10 people believe that everybody ought to be richer each generation, generation after generation after generation. That elevator has stopped. The solution is not entirely clear. The problem is partly globalization, which at a global level, of course, has lifted millions, if not billions, out of absolute poverty at a global level. The question is, in terms of the spoils of economic growth are now global economic growth are more evenly distributed in some ways, but our special advantages that we had after the end of the Second World War in the late 20th century seem to be, in relative terms, diminished. Uh, and so people don't know who to blame. Do you blame cheap do you blame cheap imports do you blame immigrants do you blame i don't know our lack of productivity do you blame us do we blame ourselves there's no no one has a simple answer if there was a simple and easy answer any inhabitant of downing street would have done it a long time ago and it's very interesting that you say that concerns over this stagnation have effectively uh, been borne out in sort of cultural and political shifts here and around the world um but it, 
is there an understanding that uh, that could also this stagnation could also relate to cost of living in terms of the insulation of our homes? So that could potentially be a solution to this. And if there isn't that kind of link, why isn't there that link? Well, you, I think again, this is an, an example of an area where people need political leadership. We're sitting in a city that has a congestion charge because Ken Livingston, for example, didn't bother to do an opinion poll or a referendum. He did, he did opinion polls because I did them, but he didn't do a, have a referendum about whether or not to introduce the congestion charge. He just did it, despite the fact that it was actually pretty unpopular. He then got re-elected um, in, in his sec, for his second term with 55% of Londoners voting for him in their first or second preference because it sort of worked. We have one of the highest um, amounts of reusables in our energy supply out of the OECD countries because the government, again, didn't do a referendum. They put, they, they, we did some planning stuff around wind, wind farms, etc. We, we made people pay a bit more for their electricity and uh, we, you know, we have done quite well in terms of renewables. I think it's really interesting to look at a country like Denmark where electricity bills are lower uh, than in Britain, despite the price of energy traditionally being much, much higher, because, of course, as you probably know, as an architect, they have cracked the insulation problem. Um, and so, you know, it's going to need some sort of, to be quite honest, I would go for benign despotism. We need very strict building codes. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that, that is, it is going to be that type of thing. If you're waiting for the market to provide or for people to decide, oh, oh I'll insulate my house rather than have a new kitchen, You'll be waiting a long time. Power shortages could block the construction of new homes in West London as developers are told that new housing developments could be banned for up to a decade. A letter from the Greater London Authority warned house builders that three London boroughs are already rejecting planning applications because the grid that powers everything from housing to industrial estates is running low on capacity. This story broke in the Financial Times and it's also been picked up by the built environment media including the AJ and Construction News. According to the FT report, planning applications for 25 homes or more are currently being affected in the boroughs of Hillingdon, Ealing and Hounslow, and it could take until 2035 to rebuild capacity. According to the GLA's notes, quote, major applications to the distribution network, including housing developments, commercial premises and industrial activities, will have to wait several years to receive new electricity connections. The electricity shortage is being blamed on the rapid expansion of data centres, which use huge quantities of electricity, in some cases enough for an entire town, to power the servers we use every day when browsing the internet. A spokesperson for the Energy Networks Association, which represents the UK and Ireland's energy networks businesses, said, quote, The constraints faced in West London are an isolated circumstance caused by a quick and concentrated expansion of demand from a localised growth in data centres far higher than forecast. An Ealing Council spokesperson said the authority was, quote, deeply concerned by the situation. They went on to say, quote, in the middle of an affordable housing crisis in Ealing and across London, it is vital that we're able to continue building new genuinely affordable homes to let, we have requested urgent meetings with the Greater London Authority and government ministers to discuss how this issue can be resolved and we'll be monitoring developments closely. So Ben, what's this all about? Why are new homes so desperately needed in this part of West London? And why is it such a headline grabbing story that they're being held back due to an electricity shortage? Well, I think it's another example of our, our problems with long-term planning in Britain and our tendency to think about, you know, putting in housing before we do the infrastructure around it. 
uh, which is which is one of the reasons why people are often resistant to new um, new developments in their area because they believe that existing facilities, or in this case, the electricity supply, is going to be swamped. And uh, again, you know, this is back to you know, are, are are we really strategic in terms of how we're going about planning? Who to if if we rely on the market to dictate everything? you then end up with this sort of situation. Presumably at some point, you know, people will notice there's a shortage of electricity and the market will, the market will somehow provide. But one of people's consistent complaints uh, in Britain is that we are not joined up in terms of how we think about infrastructure or long-term planning. And I think for many people, this would just be, oh, they've done it again. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Also, if you imagine being a property developer in West London, uh, and those neighborhoods are very popular. You think buying land there is probably enormously expensive, okay? Um, yeah. and, and, and yet, we're now hearing that you can't build anything on it because it, it doesn't have enough electricity. So, like, is, is there a kind of understanding that this failure of infrastructure planning um, then could have a real impact on market values themselves, um, both in the public and in, in professional respondents? Nobody's going to weep about developers taking a loss on some land that they've bought as a speculative investment. But I think it is this, it's just this, given that we have most people in this country saying there's a housing crisis, given London is one of the parts of Britain where more you know, people, housing supply and rents uh, and house prices are, are frequently cited as one of the key issues, which is certainly not the, the case in the north of England, for example, just reflecting the disparity and the, the, the multiple of earnings that are necessary to buy somewhere here. Uh, it will just be, this is just going to be cause deep frustration that, um, you know, people are not are not joined up about this. And wh- where where is the plan? I mean, it seems a bit extraordinary that they, uh, we've got major plans to build in areas like Acton, etc., uh, in, in West London, and that people haven't quite looked at energy consumption uh, alongside everything else. In a recent tweet, the archaeologist and academic Mary Shepperson made the point that no new reservoirs have been built in the UK for 30 years. Uh, but in the previous 150 years, reservoirs were constructed roughly every five years. Um, so despite rapid and predicted population growth in the past decades, uh, there's clearly been insufficient planning put in, into meeting this growth with new infrastructure. Uh, ben, how did this situation arise? What are the origins of us being in this situation? Because clearly 150 years ago, at least with water, it was different. Um, and is this something that's widely recognised across society as a very challenging issue for the future? I think, again, we're, we're back to infrastructure planning. We're back to the extremes of climate and a, and a climate that is more unpredictable, uh, potentially, than in the past. Uh, overall, actually, the public, on, on average, in Britain, are not particularly worried about water supply. They weren't very happy about the sale of the water companies, which used to be publicly owned. And of course, the logic in selling off the water industry, or one of the logics for it, pieces of logic for it, was that it would enable more investment. I think there is a real case to be answered about the amount of investment relative to the dividends that the uh, water companies pay their owners now, under our, and, and also the leaks regime, and how well the regulator is dealing with that, given that I think we're apparently wasting up to a quarter of our entire water supply. I think what you have to remember is that if you look at all of these interrelated, long-term structural issues, uh, for most people, they've just got other things to do. And they assume that somebody competent somewhere will think about these issues and do something. They may be wrong. 
Buy-to-let landlords are throwing fuel on the fire at the housing crisis and freezing people out of low-cost housing options, according to a new report. Analysis by the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, published in the New Statesman, reveals that since the year 2000, the proportion of people owning two or more homes has more than doubled. Meanwhile, the proportion of people below the age of 34 who own their own home fell from 36 to 21% in the same period. And that's not even mentioning the collapse of access to long-term, low-cost, high-quality public housing. A spokesperson from the foundation, which works to fight poverty, said, quote, The fall in home ownership against a backdrop of multiple home ownership has, in part, been facilitated by the structure of mortgage market regulations, which have led banks to view buy-to-let landlords as less risky. The foundation concluded that in addition to more house building, a reduction in the private rented sector needs to happen in order to alleviate stresses on first-time buyers and social renters. The New Statesman quoted another survey, this time by the Resolution Foundation, which found that two-thirds of people aged 25 to 34 said the cost of saving for a deposit was the primary hurdle to getting on the property ladder. Meanwhile, The Guardian reported that the Bank of England has binned a key mortgage affordability test, making it easier for potential homeowners to get on the property ladder. Critics have said that scrapping the requirement that forced borrowers to weather a three percentage point rise in interest before they could be approved for a loan will allow more people to take out mortgages they cannot afford. One senior personal finance analyst, Myron Jobson, said relaxing these rules during a cost of living crisis could, quote, run the risk of people biting off more than they can chew financially to purchase a property. Ben, what are buy-to-let landlords and why has this increase in multiple home ownership limited options for those looking for low-cost housing? Well, very crudely, it's supply and demand. If there's, if there's only a certain number of homes available and more of them become owned by landlords as opposed to individual uh, renters or occupiers, then the landlord, you know, that, the short, the people won't, if, if the landlords are able to buy them up uh, more easily than, say, younger first-time buyers, then very crudely, we are where we are today. It's also true in the United States. So, there are, you know, asset owners have gotten richer and been able to get buy more and more things. And people working have found it, as, as assets rose in, in price and value, harder and harder to get their hands on them. But uh, it's just a symptom of what is going on in the housing market as a whole. And fundamentally, a sign that we, we don't have the right amount of public, of public housing or or new housing for the, to, to actually drive down ultimately the price. Uh, so you know, you're either going to produce more social housing or you're going to have to produce new housing in such volumes that uh, overall prices fall. Just thinking anecdotally, people, well, estate agents are quite unpopular and apparently people on their dating profiles put no estate agents apply or something like that. Um, what, what's public opinion on buy-to-let landlords? And also we have all these articles saying they're struggling. What's their opinion on themselves? Are they, are they all looking for an exit? Well, they're not. I mean, you know, again, a lot of landlords are not necessarily big, you know, they're not big business people very often. They might only have two or three flats. They're trying to pay the bills. They've got taxes to pay like everybody else. I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting one, they're going to get much sympathy. Estate agents, Agents are some of the least um, trusted people in society. Actually, the most unpopular people, or at least the least trusted, 
um, are advertising executives. And um, estate agents are about twice as trusted as advertising executives. And they're more trusted, interestingly, than our politicians, who are currently the, um, at about their lowest level ever in terms of overall perceived reliability. So on the topic of politics, um, schemes such as right to buy, help to buy, uh, measures to increase the availability of mortgages and encourage home ownership, they seem to really dominate both housing and financial policy here in the UK. Are measures like these a genuinely sustainable solution to the housing crisis? Um, and if they're not, why are they still so popular with the public? Well, they're popular because they're a subsidy from the state. So who's not, what's not to like a bit of a free, a free money? The challenge is, of course, because they don't deal with the underlying structural problem of not enough housing, they simply create, you know, they support more demand for inflated prices on the existing stock. Uh, yes, they, I guess they, st- they do stimulate some, in fairness, they do stimulate some new housing, but again, not on the scale that is needed. And so politically, they make a great deal of sense particularly for the Conservative Party, because home ownership uh, is strongly correlated with a small C conservatism uh, and potentially, as they see it, a larger C conservatism. And just quickly, uh, what is public opinion on the housing crisis itself? And considering it's such a long running crisis, uh, why is public opinion on this issue seemingly not powerful enough to bring about a long term resolution on this issue by any government in recent times? I think because ultimately it's, it starts to break down in the detail. So people acknowledge that there's a housing crisis. Uh, and then when you ask them what the, prob- the particular problem is, uh, it is that, first of all, that houses are too expensive. You then get into, well, how might we fix that? So we could fix that by borrowing more money to build more social housing. Uh, and there is just about majority support for doing that, despite the huge debts that Britain has amassed in the last decade. Uh, Or, of course, uh, you could um, build more housing for people to own. Uh, We get into the issue there about where you're going to put it. And so you get into this situation where people acknowledge there's a problem. They don't all agree with the solutions. And, uh, of course, in terms of accountability, as I was saying earlier, one of the challenges is, do you blame the property industry? Do you blame the builders? Do you blame the government? Do you blame your local authority? Do you blame the planning inspectorate? The whole system is is complex. Uh, People don't see, uh, in in contrast to the National Health Service, which is a pretty complex piece of machinery, but nevertheless, it has a Whitehall department very clear there's a secretary of state who's in charge if lots of people are dying in a particular hospital you know questions will be asked in the house of commons if a particular area is very overcrowded and there aren't enough houses there um you know the housing minister isn't is is a much more low profile politician which again shows you where that where it stacks up it's you know it's been sort of the housing ministry of old has been subsumed into DCLG or now the Ministry for Leveling Up, etc. And so because of that, that, the level of complexity, because of the lack of clarity, it's sort of, and because there are winners and losers, because actually larger number, there's a large minority of people who, as you've already pointed out, who own their properties outright and are in, in many cases quite happy to see them going up in value. Uh, because of that, the overall recognition that there's a problem sort of breaks down at a local level in terms of what the solutions might be. And and just thinking about what you said there, I mean, sometimes public opinion does throw its weight behind a very meaningful cause that does potentially make one poorer or make society weaker. And it's almost like a kind of sacrifice, uh, 
could cite Brexit as an example, right? So why well, is that it was, that, that was this? That was about emotion and sovereignty rather than economics. Can something like that come about in housing? Could there be some kind of meaningful public opinion going behind making a yeah. sacrifice to solve housing? Unfortunately, it would have to get much, much worse uh, before the the level of concern hit the point at which people would be saying, OK, I'm going to pay more taxes or whatever I'm going to do to, to make this, to, to deal with this issue. Uh, and I think that that is, uh, unfortunately, at the heart of it. I mean, I think that although things are bad, it's not like the end of World War II when large numbers of cities had been damaged by bombing and large numbers of people were housed. You know, people were sharing, you know, 20 people sharing a single toilet. It's not like the situation after World War I. Uh, and so I think we just don't have that, that we haven't hit that tipping point where, you know, where there is a sort of recognition. Many of the, the things that we're dealing with at the moment are the slow, in a sense, deterioration of the social consensus at the end of World War Two, when it was decided that we needed a proper welfare state, we needed a health service, we needed housing, we needed universal education, uh, as a result of people genuinely having been in it together for six long years of World War Two, We're just not in that situation. British society is far more... I wouldn't say polarised, but I would say fragmented uh, and diverse than it was at that, at that historic point after the end of World War II. And that makes being a politician, to be quite honest, in fairness to them, much more difficult too. Berthold Lubetkin's mini masterpiece, the Finsbury Health Centre, is set for a £1.25 million restoration led by Avanti Architects. This was reported by the AJ this week. The 85-year-old landmark in Clerkenwell, once voted the greatest building of the 20th century and credited by some as a physical precursor to the NHS, has been suffering from leaks and general deterioration for years. Built in 1938 when Finsbury was a poor and overcrowded area, the health centre was created as as part of a borough-wide plan to improve poor public health with baths, libraries, nurseries and a health centre. The new centre featured tuberculosis and foot clinics, a solarium, a dentist, and even chairs designed by Finnish architect and designer Alva Alto. Its striking concrete structure is largely covered in glazed tiles and features a front facade of statement glass bricks. Describing the grade one listed building, the 20th century society said, quote, The realisation of a radical humanitarian brief for a deprived community in a new building type, it encapsulated all of modernism's progressive ideals, social, technical, aesthetic, combined with a political and architectural conviction unequaled by any other work of its era. Lubetkin famously believed nothing is too good for ordinary people, and he characterised the building's form as a, quote, curving facade and outstretched arms intended to introduce a smile into what in fact is a machine. Today, despite falling into a degree of disrepair, the health centre is still running under the ownership of NHS Property Services, a government-owned company formed in 2013 to help the NHS get the most from its estate. Avanti first surveyed the building back in 1988, and director John Allen, who knew Lubetkin personally, said to the AJ, quote, After a pause of over 25 years, it is profoundly gratifying now to be able to pick up where we left off. So Ben, the Finsbury Health Centre is very popular with architects due to both its aesthetic style, but also what it signifies. Um, what do you make of the Health Centre and why do you think it's an important London landmark? Well, it's a great example of modernism and that moment of optimism in British society in the mid 
uh, early to mid 20th century when things could be better. We're talking about the period of slum clearance, mass building of suburbs, which we can we can complain about suburbs all you like, but the people who moved to them liked them, uh, light, air, etc., etc. And the, so the, the Finsbury Health Centre, it's iconic. And I think, again, you need to be careful about public opinion on buildings. You know, the Eiffel Tower was deeply unpopular when it was proposed. And for a lot of people, when it was put up, if you suggest to Parisians now that you tear it down, um, you will have a riot on your hands. So, you know, views do change. But no, this building has its place in our history. And I think as a sign of optimism of what people can do together, of, of, of proper services for decent services for people, particularly at the time when it was built, before the, of course, before the existence of the NHS, roughly 10 years later, um, it was a real statement of intent about a better society. And it's great to see architecture standing up for a better society rather than just international capital, to be quite honest. Uh, and so, no, I'm a fan, I guess, and I'm, I'm glad to see, I hope that it's not been too butchered uh, and won't be too butchered as we try and modernise it and bring it up to date. We're now on to the culture section where we round up exciting things going on in London's architecture and built environment culture. Um, so big announcement uh, from Open City. Uh, we've just launched pre-orders for our new book, London Feeds Itself. It's edited by Jonathan Nunn, who's the author of the Vittles Food blog, and it explores London's food migration and architecture. Um, so I just, just going to read a bit of the blurb. It is a very, very cool book, uh, which you can now get on the Open City website. So it says here, London is often called the best place in the world to eat, a city where a new landmark restaurant opens each day, where vertiginous towers, sprawling food halls and central neighbourhoods contain the cuisines of every culture in the world. Yet this London is not where Londoners usually eat. There is another version of London that exists in its marginal spaces, where food culture flourishes in parks and allotments, in warehouses and industrial estates, along rivers and A-roads, in baths and in libraries. A city where Londoners eat, sell, produce and distribute food every day without fanfare, where its food culture weaves in and out of daily urban existence. Um, so this is a book that's going to have 25 essays, about 25 different buildings, uh, 125 guides to individual restaurants with some of the city's best vernacular eateries all across the 33 London boroughs. Um, ben, it sounds like quite an exciting book. Um, that I, uh, I wonder, do you have a favourite vernacular restaurant, something which is an extraordinary place with extraordinary food, but isn't on the sort of traditional restaurant trail? Okay, well, I'm, my current fave is a place called Tockless in Surrey Street, which is if, it's a bit like being in a car park. It's got a nice brutalist uh, coffered concrete ceiling. And uh, I'm not, I think I'm not sure exactly what the building was originally, but that's, uh, that's not quite what you expect in central London. So that, that's great. And that is it. We're, we're very lucky to, to live and work in a city like London where there's so many uh, food options. Um, I mean, is it quite unique to dedicate a whole book focusing on those unusual spots where you tend to find some amazing food? I mean, we're literally talking about you know a pop-up eatery in a car park, or like the you know, the Albert Bridge food um, van, or the, the sorry Chelsea Bridge food van, or oh my god, the Chelsea Bridge food van! I kept thinking that place was. I, I go past that every day, and I I assumed they were sort of selling drugs in there because there's people queuing up at it at all times of day and night, often in very expensive cars. And I I talked to a taxi driver, talked about some people landed from the Middle East and got straight in a black cab at Heathrow, and that was the first place they wanted to go. So I must go and actually find out like if the burgers are any good or if there's something else 
plants for sale there. But in all seriousness, I think this is just an example of how food culture um, in London has certainly improved. But generally, with people traveling much, much more than they did 20 or 30 years ago, with, um, you know, although we complain about the state of the economy, we complain about the cost of living crisis. You know, if you compare what I was able to buy in supermarkets in the 1970s in Britain compared to what you're able to buy now, it's a different world. And so this it's, it's, a, it's a still a symbol, actually, of, of just... So, of, of globalization, of travel, of, um, of people's tastes broadening. Uh, you know, if you go back to Elizabeth David writing in the early 1950s about uh, Italian and continental food, she describes a world where olive oil was only sold in Britain in chemists for use for medicinal purposes. I mean, the food, you know, this is just a further extension of the revolution in food that we've seen since the 1990s. Uh, it does exist. This type of thing exists all over uh, North America, Asia, Europe, you name it. But it's wonderful. So that's London Feeds itself, available to pre-order now from the Open City website, 1899. Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure to feature you on the London this week. Uh, we hope we can have you again on the show in the future. Pleasure, pleasure. Uh, where should our listeners go to stay up to speed with all the things you're doing? Is there a website or some social media handles? Uh, they, should... they, can, they can follow Ben at Ipsos uh, on Twitter, which is my preferred social media. Bennett Ipsos, I-P-S-O-S, uh, I'm, or the website, which is a bit corporate, but does have loads of stuff on it, www.ipsos.com. Uh, and uh, you will find all sorts of great things there if you want public opinion. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for being on the show. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag London, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 